0: Christ Church, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, a little book that's lodged in between Obadiah and Micah. Uh, Perhaps you need to clean the cobwebs out of that section of your Bible. I don't know. Uh, But it's a wonderful uh, book here that we'll be studying over the next few uh, weeks uh, together as a congregation. Uh, This evening, uh, I'm going to ask you just to go ahead and stay seated as I read. I'm going to read uh, a fairly large section of Jonah, as this will be a bit of an introduction, and overview to the book of Jonah. I want to give us a sense uh, of the book as uh, we look at a general uh, overview. Jonah chapter 1 and beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Jonah. And we ask that you would be pleased to teach us, to mature us as your children, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, to point us yet again to your Son as we study this significant book in the Old Testament, a book which points us ultimately to Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Jonah, uh, of course, is a favorite among many. How could it not be? How could it not be? There is, is, after all, much drama and and action and adventure in the book of Jonah. It's a fast-moving narrative filled with dramatic nautical scenes of a A cargo ship, a great tempest, a a company of terrified sailors, and a willful prophet who is running from the presence of the Lord and the will of the Lord. Moreover, in the story of Jonah, we are told of a great fish. A great fish appointed by God to swallow up this reluctant prophet and take him back in the direction of Nineveh and vomit him up alive on dry land whether he was alive that whole time or died and then was resurrected and and spit out onto dry land we don't know all we know is he was hurled into the sea he was swallowed up and three days later vomited on dry land and within the fish uh, declared this glorious prayer and testimony of God's grace what a story More often than not, it's the large fish, which was probably some kind of a whale that captures the reader's attention and becomes the focus and center point of the book of Jonah. I was just reading in the news, I think it was yesterday, that uh, a fishing vessel had run into a whale somewhere. I don't forget even where it was, but it struck me as an interesting story in light of what I'm about to preach, that this whale was so big that it sunk this massive shipping boat, uh, fishing boat, rather. So whales can get pretty big. When people think of Jonah, they immediately think of the great fish and the various questions related to this fish. But this is all wrong. This is all wrong. It's a glaring error of biblical interpretation to put the focus on the fish. Jonah is not primarily about a great fish who swallows a reluctant prophet. The book of Jonah is chiefly about a great God who loves guilty sinners. Let me say that again. Jonah is not primarily about a great fish who swallows a reluctant prophet. No, the book of Jonah is about a great God chiefly about a great God who loves guilty sinners. The book of Jonah is about a great God who has compassion upon the wicked and idolatrous people of Nineveh and literally moves heaven, seas, pagan sailors, and a great fish to bring his word of salvation through Jonah to these pagans. Jonah is a book about God and his sovereign grace towards sinners. Grace, again, which comes through the faithful preaching of his word. Christ's church, let us never forget. Let us never forget that salvation does not come through moral strivings, by filling up trophy cases with tarnished good works. No, salvation comes through God's sovereign grace in Christ. He has done it. As it states at the end of chapter 2 and verse 9, which is a, a kind of thesis statement for uh, the book of Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. Therefore, Jonah is a book that's timely and relevant for all people in all ages, not least our own. Indeed, it must be said from the outset of our study of Jonah that there's no more important message for the world today Than the message of Jonah. But the question is is this story true? Is this story true? Is the book of Jonah historical fact or ancient fiction? And does it even really matter if it's true or not? These questions, of course, have been hotly debated for centuries. Some theologians and pastors actually quickly dismiss any notion of Jonah being grounded upon historical facts. They don't believe it is true. They don't believe it even could be true. They are the same ones, of course, that deny that the Bible is the inerrant and infallible word of the living God and dissent from cardinal doctrines such as penal substitutionary atonement and the bodily resurrection of Christ. I experienced this false teaching, interestingly, as a brand new Christian. It was literally the week after I was saved that I decided to go to a church in the downtown uh, of of Clemson, South Carolina. I didn't know where I was going. I just figured I'd go to uh, this big church in town and that I would hear something of that which I had just learned in my conversion, that I would meet with Christians And uh, in this church, and they would be as zealous for the truth as I now was. But I unwillingly walked into a liberal mainline church. And the pastor who was preaching on the book of Jonah that Sunday mentioned that the story was indeed not based on historical fact, but was a sacred myth a sacred myth imbued with important moral lessons for life. Suffice it to say, it was the first time and the last time that I attended this church. I hope things are going better there now. This morning, a church member actually stopped me and said that a person that he knows, who used to be a sound believer, but later gave in to the lies of liberal Christianity, believes that Jonah is a myth. That it never really happened. Perhaps you have heard these things from theologians, pastors, friends, family members as well. What are we to think? Are we fools to think that the book of Jonah could actually be true? Well, we have no reason to believe that Jonah is fiction. And every reason to believe that it is indeed historical fact. Jonah, unlike most parables and allegories, is written with specific historical detail. And we will unpack those details in the coming weeks. And here's the thing that we must remember as well. The same God whom we believe made the heavens and the earth in six days by his word can certainly command one of his creatures to swallow up Jonah and spit him up on dry land. This is not difficult for God if you believe in God. When we look at the world, when we look at all that God has made, it seems so evident that there is intelligent design, as it were, that there is a maker who has created the heavens and the earth with such beauty, with such majesty, with the signature of his wisdom and power and love and glory all over creation. We see it every day in the Charleston Low Country. We see it in the foliage and the trees and the marsh and the oceans and the birds and all of these beautiful things and all kinds of colors. The Lord has done it. Do we really think it's Somehow impossible then that he would send a a fish to swallow a man and spit him up on dry land? Do we really think this same God wouldn't send or couldn't send his beloved son into the world to become one of us without ceasing to be God and, and accomplish our redemption? Of course, God... Can do all of his holy will. And this was part of his holy will. Most importantly, as we consider the veracity of the story of Jonah, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ referenced the story of Jonah in his public ministry as a true sign of his atoning death and resurrection. If you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 39. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 39, and you tell me if you think that our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking of Jonah as some kind of a myth. Matthew 12, 39 and following. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Is there anything in here that looks like a myth or an allegory or a parable? Absolutely not. To say that Jonah is not true is to say that Jesus is a liar and that his words are not true. Now, there's so much to unpack here, of course, and again, we'll do so in the coming weeks. But what I want us to simply recognize this evening from Jesus' words are two things. Number one, Jesus here speaks of the experience and preaching of Jonah and the repentance of Nineveh as historical fact and not fairy tale fiction allegory or myth. If one comes to the conclusion that Jonah is allegory or fiction, then they might, and sometimes do, likewise conclude that Jesus' words about his death and resurrection are fictional and allegory as well. And this is exactly what liberal churches teach, by the way. If Jonah is viewed as historical, then why not view other biblical accounts and miracles in the same way? So that's the first point. Jesus speaks of Jonah in historical and factual terms. Secondly, the book of Jonah anticipates and announces the gospel. The book of Jonah anticipates and announces the gospel. It also anticipates and announces the salvation of the Gentiles, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, We must get this if we are going to get the root meaning of Jonah. Jonah is a sign, according to Christ himself, pointing forward to the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's what makes Jonah important. Not necessarily, or chiefly, that a big fish swallowed up the reluctant prophet and spit him up on dry ground. There's all these different lessons we're going to learn from that. Jonah is important because it proclaims the gospel. That's why we want to study Jonah primarily. It's what we read earlier from Matthew 12. This is why one writer that I read this week quotes the great Hugh Martin as saying that Jonah's mission should not be regarded as, quote, an isolated and merely romantic incident in sacred history. Rather it becomes one of the grandest events in the history of redemption from the exodus of Israel to the advent of Messiah and the calling of the Gentiles. So Christ Church, please hear this. The story and sign of Jonah points to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and consequently to our death to sin and resurrection unto life in him. Jonah is a sign for the ages. Why? Because it proclaims the once-for-all salvation realized in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Well then, as we embark on this new exposition, it's important that we understand something of the background, the author, the context, the themes of Jonah. You'll find an outline in your bulletin, I believe it's on page 8, if you would like Uh, To follow along there. The first thing we want to consider is the author, who is indeed a reluctant prophet. While there are honest questions that surround the book's author, it's widely held that it was written by Jonah, or uh, perhaps someone close to Jonah, someone that knew his story. Therefore, the book of Jonah is either biographical or autobiographical in nature. Perhaps like me, you love to read a biography and autobiography. It's fascinating, isn't it, to learn uh, about the lives of others, to learn about their upbringing, uh, their historical setting, the challenges that they face, the obstacles uh, that they fought to overcome. It's what uh, brings alive these things in, in history when we study biography and autobiography. Sometimes I come to the end of a biography and the person has died and I'm, I'm wiping tears from my eyes and I'm like, oh, it's over uh, and I'm very sad to put the book down, and I feel like I've lost a friend, and and that's just the experience you have. It really brings you in uh, to their lives, learning about others' lives and experiences. Also, doesn't it make us examine? It makes us examine our own lives and experiences. Biographies, autobiographies, are like mirrors, revealing our own strengths and weaknesses, and challenging us to grow and to mature as individuals, as Christians, uh, I was encouraged early on in my Christian life to read biography, to always be reading a biography. And, um, and I'm thankful that I took that counsel because I have, I believe, grown so much and I've been so humbled in the light of reading solid biography. Of course, there's a lot of good Christian biography, but also uh, just biography uh, uh, about various leaders and individuals who have shaped uh, the world. Learning uh, about others' lives and experiences does make us examine our own lives and experiences. And so what we will learn over the next several weeks is that Jonah's story often reflects our own. It exposes our own sinful tendencies as individuals, as a church, such as reluctance in evangelism and mission, a lack of compassion for the lost, especially for our political enemies. It's interesting when you, and we'll talk about this over and over, but you know here is uh, Jonah being sent to, as we will learn in a minute, the primary enemies of Israel to preach the gospel to them. And the nation of Israel as a whole will surely despise the nation of Assyria and and the capital of Nineveh. And yet he's sent there. Do we find these kinds of things in our own hearts? If God were to come and say, you must go to this country or that country or this region or that region, do we put our political uh, ideals or uh, our own safety and comfort as the first thing? Uh, do we immediately despise a people because of their background, their politics, their military power, their, the things that we hear on cable news? Do we put that first when we think about a people who needs the gospel just as much as we do? We're going to learn these things and be rebuked, I think, for these things. All of us in this room uh, as we walk through Jonah. And then, of course, there's that love for comfort over a love for the lost that we are all guilty of. Consequently, if we're going to truly learn and grow from our time in the book of Jonah, we need to be open to rebuke and correction and change, all of us. We need to be willing, by God's grace, to repent and to mortify our sins of willful disobedience and self-pity. We need to confess when zeal for comfort and worldly possessions has eclipsed Our zeal for God's glory and the salvation of the nations. We need to be willing to confess, if we like Jonah have been fleeing the presence of God. We can give the appearance that our walk with God is very strong and stable and settled, and and yet the reality is, we we're fleeing from God. We're holding on to some particular sin. Maybe it's sexual sin. It's holding on to this and saying, well, Lord, I'm giving you all of this. I'm just going to keep this little sin over here. And really what that is is fleeing from God. It's hiding from him. By studying Jonah's life and weaknesses, we will see our own. May it lead us to a deeper faith in Christ and a stronger devotion to him. All By his grace and spirit. Well, this leads us to the historical context of Jonah. And we have to ask who exactly was Jonah? Who was Jonah? Well, we don't know a whole lot about him. Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, He lived in the early to middle decades of the eighth century BC, not long after Elijah and Elisha lived and ministered as prophets. Jonah labored under, we do know this, the wicked reign of King Jeroboam II. And all of this is recorded in 2 Kings 14. If you would like to turn there in your Bibles, uh, uh, 2 Kings 14, 23 and following states this. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nehat which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labohamath Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Now, it's important to remember that the prophets of Israel, the prophets of Israel were covenant prosecutors. In other words, like prosecuting attorneys, they confronted Israel for being covenant breakers. They prosecuted Israel for being Covenant breakers, you see this over and over in both the major and the minor prophets, they come in to Israel and they declare that they have broken God's laws, they are guilty, and they will come under God's judgment unless they repent. And then of course, they give the word of hope in anticipation of the Messiah. But they were covenant prosecutors. The prophets called kings and nation, priests and peasants to account for their idolatry and their sin, for their embracing of the wicked values of the pagan cultures that surrounded them rather than embracing God's holy laws and gracious promises. The prophets also declared God's judgment upon foreign nations, that is, upon their enemies, uh, though not always without a word of hope through faith and repentance. The foreign nation... Uh, that posed uh, the greatest threat to Israel was their northern neighbor, Assyria. This is important as we understand the background of Jonah. There was constant concern, uh, much like in 1940 when uh, England was bracing themselves for uh, the Germans to to enter uh, their island, uh, s- this was the same thought that Israel had about Assyria. There was constant concern that the Assyrian Empire with their mighty army would conquer them. And where was and, and where was Jonah commanded to go and to preach God's word? The capital of Assyria, namely Nineveh. Every Hebrew in Israel would have known the reputation of Nineveh. A nest of idolatrous religion, sexual perversion, and child sacrifice. It's interesting how people think that our culture is growing as a people, maturing, when we are sacrificing our children as a nation to sexual perversion. It's extraordinary when we think that we are moving forward as a nation when we are exalting all manner of wicked perversion and idolatry. This was Nineveh. God had called his people to be holy, to be set apart and to be godly. So why would they ever want to go to Nineveh? Well, You go to Nineveh when God commands you to go to Nineveh. That is, unless you're disobedient and you run in the opposite direction. It's important that we remember Jonah's context. A prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel, serving under an evil king in Israel, and called to go to their nation's number one political enemy to preach God's word of judgment and salvation. What a job what a calling remember this context remembering this context will help us to make important applications in the weeks to come so we've considered the author uh, we've considered the historical context what is the main theme of Jonah well we mentioned it earlier didn't we the theme is salvation belongs to the lord as we've been learning on lords day mornings in paul's letter to the romans salvation is not something that we receive because of family ties or religious affiliation or good works. It's not something we earn through our good works or good intentions. No, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. We do not, we do not earn it. We do not uh, deserve it. We, have, we do not have a right to it. It's a gift from God, lest any man would boast in himself uh, for his right standing with God. Salvation is a work of God's free grace accomplished by the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and irresistibly applied by the Holy Spirit. All of this is taught in the book of Jonah. Indeed, the book of Jonah teaches that God is sovereign over salvation, but he's also sovereign over everything else, from the smallest thing to the greatest. He is the sovereign God. We learn this powerful lesson In the book of Jonah, again and again, and it's a great comfort, is it not, to know that we do not live in a world of random circumstance, of chaos. No, God is sovereign over all things and even uses, as Augustine taught, sin sinlessly to carry out his own ends and will. Our Reformed confessions, of course, teach us about the providence of God, which is the outworking of his sovereignty in everyday life. And in Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 18, the question is asked, what are God's works of providence? Answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and All their actions to his own glory. In the Heidelberg Catechism, we have two questions and answers that are some of the most precious uh, descriptions of God's providence uh, written anywhere. Questions 27 and 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer God's providence is his almighty and ever present power. "...whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand." What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move. How comforting that we do not live in a world of chaos, random circumstance. We live in a world. That our Father reigns over by His sovereign hand, and He works as Romans eight twenty eight says, all things, not some things or most things, but all things, the good and the bad, uh, the wealth and the poverty, all the leaf and the all everything that happens in life, we can trust the Lord even when we don't understand, and there are lots of things in this life we do not understand, and there's lots of pain that we experience in this valley of tears in which we live, every one of us in this room is experiencing it now in some measure, the thorniness of this present evil age. But we trust the Lord and we lean not on our own understanding and we continue to look to him and believe his promises and anticipate the glory that is to come. In the book of Jonah, we see God's providence One act of providence after another and his control over all things like the wind, the lot that was cast, the whale that was sent, the preserving of Jonah in the whale and being spit up on dry land, the plant that came up, the plant that withered, all these things from the smallest to the greatest, God is sovereign in his providence, but in the book of Jonah, we see a special focus, do we not, upon God's sovereignty and salvation and his plan to work that salvation, not just in Israel, but among the nations. And so here we see God's sovereign plan for the nations, do we not? And all of this, of course, works into our, our understanding of mission. And God is the one who is saving and Christ is the one who is building his church. And all of this began in a covenant before time called the Covenant of Redemption. Of course, this sovereign plan or purpose was ratified before time between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This sacred bond was between the three persons of the Trinity to save sinners from everlasting damnation, to save a people from what they deserve and to make them His own. Before time, the Father... Uh, declare to the Son, I will send you, the Son willingly accepts, and they bond together, and the Spirit as well to do this, a sacred bond, a covenant of redemption. We see evidence of this covenant of redemption in Ephesians chapter one. We also hear of it in the words of Jesus in his high priestly prayer in john seventeen three and four listen to this john seventeen three and four Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is hearkening back to that covenant of redemption that took place before time, where the Father gave the Son work to do, namely to accomplish redemption for the elect. This covenant of redemption. We will learn was not simply made for Israel, but for unworthy elect sinners in every tribe, tongue, and nation. The sovereign plan for the salvation of sinners was first, of course, pronounced in Genesis 3:15. What theologians have called the Proto-Evangelion, the first proclamation of the gospel. Uh, the, the gospel was purposed before time in the covenant of redemption, and first declared in time in Genesis 3:15. After Adam had fallen into sin, he himself, uh, he hid himself rather from God. Adam and Eve deserved to die immediately for what they had done, and surely they expected to. But God, rather than curse Adam to death. Cursed the serpent, and through that curse makes glorious promises to him and to sinners. Genesis 3.15, I will put my enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. I shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Dear ones, this champion, this champion offspring or seed of the woman is Christ, and he will through his atoning death and resurrection crush the head of Satan securing salvation for those whom the Father had given him. Well, thirdly, we see God's sovereign plan for the nations in his covenant promise to Abraham, don't we? Abraham uh, received this promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. In verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be Blessed. Did you catch that last part? God's sovereign plan of salvation is for the nations. It's not just for Israel. It's for the nations. This helps inform us as it concerns Jonah. We see this plan for the nations also declared in the Psalms. Just a couple of verses. And we sang Psalm 67 earlier, but in Psalm 66, 1, it states, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give him glorious praise. And in the very next psalm, Psalm 67, the so-called missionary psalm, it says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth. Sometimes we forget to add that next part in our own thinking. Lord, bless us. Shine your face upon us. May we know your blessing full stop rather than so that your name may be known on the earth. You're saving power among all nations, the psalmist writes. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all of the ends of the earth Fear Him. God's sovereign plan is for the nations. And this is reinforced. This is highlighted in the book of Jonah as our compassionate God sends the prophet to the great city of Nineveh that they would repent and embrace God's covenant promise of grace and salvation through the Messiah who is to come. My prayer, Christ Church, is that through this study, the Lord would cultivate in us this compassion that God has shown to Nineveh, that we, especially, if I can be very pointed here, especially as election season draws upon us, it is upon us, but as the election date comes and as we have uh, the, the the two years of, of back and forth and uh, the polarization and the angry words and the way that we think about one another, you know, we have really grown hardened and have gotten off track as Christians and as a church if the first, pers- first thing we think about a person who moves into the neighborhood is whether or not they're a Republican or a Democrat, what sign they're going to put out in front. Now, we are all very passionate, I believe, in this church, most of us anyway, about these things, and there's a sense in which we should be. But our greatest allegiance is to Christ and to his mission. Amen? We all need Christ. Muslim nations need Christ. China needs Christ. Those who may be happy to put a bomb in this church and blow us all up need Christ. Our enemies need Christ. We are called to, last time I checked my Bible, love our enemies and to pray for them and to pray for those who persecute us. You see, it's so easy to allow the political polarization of our culture with so much at stake, and there is so much at stake, to begin to get us off track as it concerns our Christian witness. We are Christians first. We are followers of Christ first. We first think through the lenses of Scripture, not through the lenses of Fox News or CNN or whatever channel you like to watch or that I like to watch. We need to remember this. And I believe that one thing that has happened is we have lost our evangelistic zeal. It is a strategy of Satan to cause us to get off track as it concerns evangelism because we are distracted by so many other things which are of lesser importance. God's sovereign mission to the nations, of course, looks different in the Old Testament than it does in the New. Very quickly, in the Old Testament, Israel was a a come-and-see approach. Come and see. In the New Testament, the spiritual Israel, which are all of God's elect, the emphasis is less on come and see and more on go and tell. Indeed, the great commission from our Lord Jesus Christ is to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ commanded. And so there's a go aspect. There's a, an aspect of making disciples, which really must be done in one place, but there's never you never lose that going either. We are a disciple-making church, and we must be a sending church. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church at Pentecost to empower the church to be faithful witnesses in the mission that God has given to us. And it's through this mission of gospel proclamation and the making of disciples that God would pour out his sovereign grace upon the elect of the nations. Jonah understood the heart of God toward the nations, especially toward the Ninevites. In fact, it bothered him. He understood it, and it bothered him. He had a bad attitude towards God's grace for Nineveh, as is often the case even with us. God's compassion for the lost far outweighs our own. How about God's sovereign grace for the nations? Look at chapter 4 and verse 2 of Jonah. And he prayed to the Lord, and said, that is, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah gives us clear a clear picture of this these glorious attributes of God as being gracious and merciful and steadfast in love and kindness slow to anger this is the god we serve this is the god that we serve as we go into all the world and make disciples jonah knew the heart of god jonah knew what god would likely do through his preaching in nineveh and so he fled This also teaches us, doesn't it, about the sin, stubbornness, and selfishness of God's people. Look with me at chapter 4 and verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah is not just glad, but exceedingly glad because of this dinky little plant that's giving him a little bit of shade. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. So God is sovereign over worms as well as whales. He appoints a worm that attacked the plant This is the one who just previously in chapter two has been repenting and glorying in the grace of God and declaring salvation is of the Lord. Now he's back in this, this attitude. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a, uh, in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle here in jonah we see not only the sovereign grace and kindness and mercy of god ultimately realized for us in jesus christ we see the sin stubbornness and selfishness of god's people and we aren't so different than jonah the reluctant prophet and so dear ones just a couple of words of encouragement let us Look to Christ. Jonah is a sign pointing to Christ, anticipating Christ and his life, death, three days in the tomb and resurrection. May we look to him, not to the law, not to good works, not to our missionary enterprises, that which will make us right before God, but to Christ. And let us recognize that we have been called as a church to obey the Great Commission. Uh, The PCA's motto is uh, that we would be faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. We are a Great Commission church, and so may we be busy about this. And we hope and pray that our mission conference coming up will be a great encouragement and stimulus to us. Thirdly, if, dear one, you are hiding from God, if you are fleeing the presence of God, Repent. Turn from whatever sin is dividing you from God, is separating you from communion with God, and come back to him. Don't make it so that God has to point appoint something terrifying or disastrous to bring you back. Repent by God's grace and come back, and do not give in to this secret sin and fleeing from the presence uh, of God. Finally, as we come to the Lord's table, let us abide in Christ. May we share his gospel. His gospel which declares that salvation belongs to the Lord. A salvation that is realized in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this book and for this time to explore some of the themes and background. We pray that as we walk through this book in the coming Uh, weeks, that you would teach us and disciple us and strengthen our faith in Christ and help us to repent by your grace, uh, that we would grow to be more like our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you, please, uh, to stand as we sing together our hymn of response on page 536. Jesus calls us. uh, Don't read the music on this one because there will be an an alternate tune that's being played. So number 536, Jesus calls.